So if you'll turn with your Bibles to Second Samuel, where we left off the last time at chapter 20 tonight. Getting close to the end, Second Samuel is only 24 chapters long, and the, the last several chapters have kind of a mixed bag of different kinds of information that the writer is giving to us. Chapter 20 is a continuation of the story that we left off with last time, where David has now come back to Jerusalem, and uh, there was a dispute at the end of chapter 19 between the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah uh, with regard to the fact that the accusations were being made by the northern tribes that Judah was taking advantage of their relationship with David the king and leaving them out of the loop. And, of course, that presented a very, very difficult situation that resulted in a severe argument between the tribes. And it really is the makings of the final separation of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and the ten tribes in the north. Eventually, that will be a very, very major problem, but it won't happen until after Solomon ends his reign and his son Rehoboam takes his place, and then the divided kingdom will begin to become, in its entirety, a separated kingdom. shouldn't have never happened, but that is the problem when you've got people who are jealous, who are obnoxious in many cases, contentious, certainly, looking for a way to create an argument, and sometimes that is very successful, and the argument grows into a very severe situation that if it isn't dealt with, becomes something so very long-lasting and unfortunate. And that is the case with the nation of Israel. It's the case with many people in the church even in today. And so we need to be on guard against those sorts of things. But here in chapter 20, the result of that argument between the northern tribes and Judah was that one individual became the influence for all of the northern tribes, at least temporarily, there is a division that will result in that argument that we ended chapter 19 with. So chapter 20 begins with, and there happened to be there a rebel. A son of Belial is the original Hebrew, a, a man who was of very little value to most everybody else. His name was Sheba. He was the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So this man, whose name is Sheba, is a son of Bichri, and many theologians believe that they traced his heritage, his lineage, back to Saul. He may have been a relative of Saul, but they were more than one Bichri referred to in the scriptures, and so it's not really certain that he is a descendant of Saul. But it also says he was a Benjamite, which would indicate his heritage as a son of or descendant of Benjamin, but he was actually living in the territory of Ephraim. We find that out in verse 21 later in this chapter. So he lived in Ephraim. He apparently owned territory there, and he was an influential man in the tribe of Ephraim, and Ephraim, being the largest of the tribes of the northern ten tribes, had a great deal of influence over most of the other northern tribes. And so this one man, because he has a grudge against what they did with bringing David back to Jerusalem, has now started a revolt against David. We have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. And everyone to his tents is the phrase that we will hear again under Rehoboam's reign. And it's unfortunate that although the people of Israel were arguing just at the end of chapter 19 with regard to the fact that they should have had some involvement in bringing David back to Jerusalem and proclaiming him as king, 
Now, this one individual causes such a stir that the entire group of northern tribe elders now sides with this son of Belial, and they all turn against David. How fickle. And that's the way I think we find many people who follow crowds to be. As a matter of fact, we know that one example of this with Jesus in the uh, time that he was on the earth, when they saw him ride into Jerusalem, they were rejoicing, calling him the son of David. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, that apparently same crowd was influenced by a few individuals to turn against Jesus and say, crucify him, crucify him. And unfortunately, crowds tend to follow sometimes the leaders that they should not be following. And so it is with uh, pretty much any situation. You can look at our situation in our world today and find many examples of that where people are so much like a lemon. They follow a leader no matter where that leader might lead them. Jesus talked about those who are blind leaders of the blind, and they both fall into the ditch. Well, this is a perfect example of that same very thing. This man, the son of Bikri, whose name was Sheba, doesn't have long to live, but he's caused a great deal of damage in this very short incident that took place here in David's attempt to come back to Jerusalem and establish himself as king once again. Well, verse 3 continues and says, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion, and supported them, but did not go in to them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. So this little aside from the story that he has just begun to tell, uh, sort of an afterthought apparently, oh, by the way, there, remember the time when Absalom... Uh, did what he did to the concubines of David when David was out of Jerusalem. Uh, well, David has taken care of those women, just in case you were wondering. And so he inter interjects that thought in this short place here in chapter 20, verse 3. Now he comes back to the story that he began at the beginning of the chapter, saying in verse 4, And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Now remember, Amasa was the general of Absalom's army. And when Absalom was killed and David was trying to reunite the people to allow him to come back to Jerusalem and be their king, one of the things that he did was appoint Amasa as general of his army. It had a twofold purpose, I believe. One was to spite Joab, who had killed Absalom. And apparently David by this time knows that it is Joab that put the spears into uh, Absalom while he was hanging in the tree. But also, to have Amasa as his general serve the purpose of showing the people of Judah that he held no grudge against them for being such a traitorous uh, group of followers of Absalom by appointing this man Amasa as his general, he's saying, I do not hold any grudge against you. This man Amasa now is my general, and I am fine with this one who has once, at least in a short while ago, been my enemy, now is my general. That's pretty amazing grace. But he told Amasa, be back with a group of men to follow you to chase after this Sheba and get to him before he causes any great amount of trouble. He gave him three days. And so verse 5 says, So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, his cousin Abishai, brother of Joab. He didn't speak to Joab now. He's speaking to his younger brother, Ab, um, 
Abishai, and he says, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. David realizes, for some reason that we're not told, Amasa did not come back to Jerusalem as he was instructed. And David realizes he's pressed for time with regard to chasing after this man Sheba. He doesn't want him to be able to enter into a fortified city and be able to build up an army so that he would cause a greater problem than even Absalom had caused in his rebellion. So he assigns his cousin Abishai to this task of getting the men together. So he does so. And most of the men that he gets together are the ones who had been closest to David as his valiant men. And Joab was still among them. In fact, most of the valiant men that Abishai is going to bring together were once the very faithful troops of Joab. And Joab is among those who now comes together with Abishai in pursuit of Sheba. It says in verse 7, So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him, Sheba, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Amasa apparently caught up with him. Finally, he's on the scene with some of the men that he was able to get together with him. It says, Amasa came before them. Now, Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Now, Joab is among the men that Abishai has taken with him. They've now met up with Amasa. And Joab is said to have a belt with a sword that was fastened in its sheath. And it fell out. Now, the sheath for the average soldier who would be right-handed would, would be on the left-hand side of the soldier. And he would grab the sword out of the sheath, typically going into battle with his right hand and pull it out in that fashion that I just demonstrated. Now, it tells us that instead the sheath was fastened on his belt, but the sword fell out of the sheath onto the ground. And that's key, and it's very important as we look further at what is about to take place. Verse 9 says, Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. This is a friendly sort of gesture. Taking him by the beard and, and bringing him face to face would have been common and very, very like what would normally be done when good friends see each other after having been apart for a while. It appeared to Amasa as if Joab were just befriending him. But what he didn't realize is that Joab had picked up the sword with his left hand. And it tells us in verse 10, But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Now, Joab took matters once again into his own hands. He had killed Abner, remember, the general of Ishbosheth's army, the son of Saul, and David had already befriended Abner and wanted Abner to be a part of the restoration that needed to take place and in order to get the uh, people of Israel on David's side, he needed Abner and Joab killed him. Joab killed Absalom after David had said, I want my son alive. David now has killed Amasa, whom David had just appointed general over his armies in Joab's stead. Needless to say, Joab got things done. And I don't think it was very important to Joab 
what the consequences might be. It's not a very good picture that is being drawn here. It's a murderous thing that he is doing. In fact, Amasa is one of his cousins. But in spite of that, he's chosen to eliminate the competition. And now, the troops that were following Amasa and the others who were with Joab are uncertain about what to do. Until again, one of Joab's men stands and says, whoever is with Joab and with David, follow Joab. But, at verse 12, it says, Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men, a man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him, when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, there's been a delay throughout this particular portion of the story. Sheba has had an opportunity to move far north from where they originally were thinking they would catch up to him. And we'll see that as we move forward. But one last thought with regard to the hesitation. One of the things that was a reason for their hesitation primarily is because of the defilement of coming near a dead body. And so this soldier under Joab moved the body off the highway, covered it with a, a blanket of some kind so that the people could get by him without being defiled. But it was certainly also a, an issue, should we be following Joab after he has just killed David's general? So there was a certain amount of uncertainty for both of those reasons, I believe. But in verse 14, we continue the story where it says, He went through all the tribes of Israel, talking about Sheba, to Abel and Beth Maacah and all the Berites. So they were gathered together and also after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So they have arrived at this place in the north country near this tribe of Dan, the furthest north that you can go in Israel, and it is a walled city. It's city of Abel. And Abel is a very well-known city for a very good reason, as we will see momentarily. But this man has entered into the city and sought to be, because it is a walled city, protected from the onslaught that he knew was about to take place. Better to have yourself surrounded by a bunch of civilians would be his mentality, I believe. Kind of like what the Palestinians and Hezbollah and others do in the Middle East to protect themselves from the retaliation of Israel when they bomb Israel and burn their cities and when they uh, do all kinds of heinous crimes in Israel against the Israeli people. They hide themselves among the people, the citizens, women and children, in hospitals, in houses, where, in apartments where many uh, civilians are located, so that Israel will not bomb them. They know that Israel is too kind-hearted to attack innocent individuals. In fact, Israel oftentimes, when they do retaliate, before the retaliation comes, they take the time, because they know many of the cell phone numbers, they call individuals in those areas, they drop leaflets uh, before the bombing takes place to let people know that this area is going to be hit, and they do all they can to evacuate as much as possible the general population from the area that's going to be targeted by Israel's retaliatory strike. They do that on a regular basis. And yet, the world continues to blame Israel for all the various things that are going on. And it's such a sad thing to see. No matter what they do, the world hates them. Well, this man Sheba is doing the same thing as the Palestinians do in our present day. Hiding behind the skirts of women. So they besieged the city. And it says in verse 16, A wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? 
And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. He was patient. He realized, okay, there's somebody who wants to talk. Let me hear what she has to say. And I'm amazed, by the way, as we read this passage, of the way that God uses women oftentimes in the scriptures because they are, in many cases, in these cases that we are given in the Old Testament especially, very wise women indeed. And this woman was one of those who was a very wise woman. She is seeking to know why Joab is trying to besiege the city. It's a peaceful city. They don't really understand what this is all about. And she wants to find out from him what his purpose is. So it tells us, in verse 18, she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel, and so they would end disputes. So Abel was apparently known for people with wisdom that could help in settling disputes. And it says, I am also among the peaceable and faithful in Israel, and you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? This woman is indeed a very wise woman. She's making a plea to Joab to consider what it is that he's about to do and wants to know why is it that he's doing so. She doesn't realize yet the reason that Joab is trying to break down the city's wall. Well, verse 20 says, And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim... See, he's a Benjamite who lives in Ephraim. Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. She doesn't hesitate to say, I know what to do. We'll take care of this right away. Now that's a brave woman, and it's an amazing woman who was able to convince the townspeople, we've got to chop off this guy's head in order to save our own skin. And to do that, we need to do it quickly and toss the head over the wall to Joab so that he won't continue with this onslaught. Well, unfortunately, that's the way that things had to be done in that day. I wouldn't hope that it happens that way anywhere else in the world presently. But you do know that there are many evil men and women who are willing to chop the heads off of others for the sake of their supposed cause. We've seen that many times with ISIS. It happens on a regular basis in places like Iran and Iraq in Afghanistan with the Taliban. It's a terrible world we live in, and there are many people who don't hesitate to shed blood, no matter what the consequences might be. But this was indeed the right thing for them to do, to save their own lives as a city, members, people in the city, they needed to take that kind of action. She had promised Joab, the head of this man from Ephraim, and they're going to deliver. Then the woman in her wisdom, verse 22 went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So there, the rebellion has been put to a stop suddenly with the taking of this one man's life. Better that way than hundreds of men and women and children dying as a result of this man's foolishness. The last part of chapter 20 is just a recap of some of the important men in what we would call David's cabinet, perhaps. The men who helped him in his reign in Jerusalem, and they had particular tasks involved. And the first one that's listed is, you guessed it, Joab. In verse 23 it says, And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Back at the top again, he eliminates his competition. Beniah, who is also a relative of David, he's the son of Jehoiada. 
and he was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. These are the uh, men who had been valiant warriors who had been helping David all along in his reign. Many of them were not Jews. They were Gentiles. But they were faithful. And Benaiah is over them. It says Adoram was in charge of revenue. Now, that's a new office. It's not mentioned. We had a similar list in, I believe it was chapter 8 of Second Samuel, of David's helpers in the uh, kingdom management. But Adoram is in charge of revenue. I guess you could call this David's IRS, Internal Revenue Service. Now, initially, apparently, because of the great wealth of the kingdom, there was no need for taxation. But in the end of his reign, things had settled down and the spoils of war had not been coming in on a regular basis as much as at the beginning. And apparently there was a need for taxation to keep the government running. I don't know if you're all aware of this, but we didn't always have an internal revenue service. We didn't always have an income tax to have to pay to the federal government. Back in the day, they didn't need it. But somebody in government decided that it was a good thing to start doing. And that began the downward trend that we experience today with our friends in the IRS. Oh, how it would be nice, I believe, to have a time when we wouldn't be having to be taxed by the federal government or by the state government. But taxes are what they are. And Jesus said, to whom you owe taxes, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Well, they had a tax system that had been established, and Adoram was in charge of that revenue department. Jehoshaphat was the son of Ahilud, and he was a recorder. Shiva was a scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jarite, was a chief minister under David, kind of a counselor that used to be done by Ahimelech, but no longer around for that job. Now this man, Ira, is in his place. Now verse 1 of chapter 21 begins a series of events that may or may not be chronological with regard to these events that we've just been looking at. In fact, the first one probably took place early in David's reign. And some of the other events that are going to be related to in chapters following are also questionable with regard to the timing of when they actually took place. So it seems these last chapters are kind of a recap of the entire period of time under David's reign some of the things that he did that weren't mentioned earlier are now mentioned to kind of catch up on detail that got left out of the picture earlier on in the writing of this book. So chapter 21 begins with this story. In verse 1 it says, Now there was a famine in the land in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Now, you may remember the story of the Gibeonites. It goes all the way back to Joshua's time, some 400 plus years prior to this. And remember Joshua had come into the land, and he was instructed by the Lord to wipe out all of the Canaanite peoples in the land of Canaan. Well, the Gibeonites were part of that people who were in the land of Canaan, but unbeknownst to Joshua, they came to Joshua with a scheme. They made it look as though they had traveled a great distance not from the land of Canaan, but from far, far away, somewhere out in the east, where Joshua wouldn't have known who they were. And they had 
bread that had been spoiled. Their sandals were looking like they were worn. Their clothing had been worn, like as though they had been traveling for a great distance. They come to Joshua and ask Joshua to please allow them, as a people, to enter into a covenant arrangement with the nation of Israel under Joshua's command. And Joshua, though he initially questioned, he saw the bread, he saw the sandals, he looked at them and said, okay, they must be telling the truth. And so he made a covenant arrangement with them, saying to them he would never attack that people group. Come to find out, they were Canaanites. And it was revealed to him after the covenant had been made. But Joshua agreed with the Gibeonites and made a covenant with him. And as far as Joshua and the nation of Israel were concerned, that covenant was obligatory. They needed to observe that covenant throughout their days. And they did, up until the time of Saul. And for some unexplained reason, and this is the only place where we find this incident revealed, there's no mention of it elsewhere that Saul attempted to wipe out the Gibeonites, but that did apparently happen. Not only Saul, but many of his sons were involved in the process of systematically wiping out this people group. God had told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, but there was nowhere where God had told Saul to wipe out the Gibeonites. So it was an offense to God because it was a reflection on the God of Israel if Israel did something like break a covenant that had been already some 400 years in the process of being fulfilled and completed until that day. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't have happened. And apparently... God is bringing to David's attention this travesty through this drought that has been taking place in Israel for three years. David goes to the Lord and God speaks to David. We're not told how he conveys this to David, but apparently either through the priest or through direct revelation, God reveals to David that it's because of the heinous crime that Saul had committed against the Gibeonites and this needed to be corrected. So David said in verse 3 to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Well, whatever you say, I will do for you. So they're saying, Look, we don't want monetary payment for restitution. We don't want innocent lives to be killed like our people were killed. But there is something, David, that we would like you to do. And David says, whatever you want, I will do it. So verse 5, it tells us, Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, referring to Saul and his sons, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. So the request is for seven of Saul's descendants. Now, David, you may recall in an earlier chapter, had sought out a descendant of Jonathan. He wanted to remember the covenant that he had made with Jonathan before the Lord regarding his own heritage. And he found the man Mephibosheth, who was a cripple, but he was a son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul. Now I say that because his name is going to be brought up again, but it's not the same Mephibosheth. But it tells us in verse 7, the king does choose seven descendants of Saul, all of them sons born to the concubines of Saul. So this is early on in David's ministry as king of Israel. Verse 7 says, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, 
and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. Now, a couple of things I need to point out here. Again, this Mephibosheth is a son of Saul, not the son of Jonathan. David will protect Mephibosheth. But this other Mephibosheth, who is actually the uncle of Mephibosheth that David has taken to his own palace, they both have the same name, but they're not the same person. This Mephibosheth was born to Rizpah, one of the daughters of Aya, and she was a concubine of King Saul. She had these two sons, and it says also the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. Now, I have to stop here for a bit of an explanation, because in several translations, instead of Michal, it is Merab. And it is indeed Merab who was the mother of these five sons of Saul. She also was a concubine. Not a concubine, rather, but she was a daughter of Saul. Michal was one of the daughters of Saul as well, you recall. And Michal was given to David as his wife in payment for his having killed Goliath, you remember. Now, originally, it was Merab who had been promised to David, but Saul instead gave Merab to this man, Ariel, or Ariel, let me think, Adriel, rather, that's his name, Adriel, and she was given to him in marriage instead of to David. And then Michal was given to David instead. Well, Michal proved to be a problem for David, but when David was on the run, he had to leave his home, left his wife behind, Michal, and then while he was running from Saul all of those many years, Saul gave Michal to another man. Then David became king, and he took Michal back to him as his wife. So there's a real strange bedfellow story, if you will, but this is how it worked out. But Michal, it tells us, had no children because David did not go into her after she rebuked him for bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem the way that he did. And David refused to allow her into his presence from that moment on. So Michal did not have five sons. But it is possible that she raised the five sons of Merab, which is implied in the latter portion of verse 8, as it is given in this translation that I'm using, the New King James. It says again, she bore to Saul five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. So it says in this translation that Michal raised the five sons of Merab. In other translations, it just simply says that these five sons were the sons of Merab, and she bore them for Adriel, the son of Barzillai. Either way, these five sons plus the other two constitute the seven men that are going to be given to the Gibeonites in order to repair that which had been done by Saul. Reparation. And you might think, well, they're innocent, aren't they? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps it is involved in the act that Saul had been taking against the Gibeonites. They were his sons and probably were complicit in that activity. So God doesn't condone murder, but he does condone restitution for murder. And this is apparently, in God's eyes, an acceptable thing. So he gives them the seven sons of Saul. It says in verse 9, He delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest, sometime around the latter April, early May. Now Rizpah, one of the daughters of Saul, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, 
from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. I said daughter, but concubine is what I meant. And having been told that, it really impacted David a great deal, apparently. This woman was protecting the bodies of her two dead sons. And David realized, you know, we didn't really give Jonathan and Saul a proper place for their bones. And it caused him him to think about these things, and now he's going to respond with regard to them plus the seven men that had just been uh, hung by the Gibeonites. Verse 12 says, Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. Remember, the Philistines had won a battle. They took Jonathan and Saul and hung them. They beheaded them, and they hung their bodies on their walls. And the valiant men um, from Benjamin came, and they took the bodies, and they buried them. Now, David is going to the place where they were buried in Jabesh-Gilead, and taking them now, instead from there, to a proper place of burial with Saul's family vault. Verse 13 says, So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his sons, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried all the bones of Saul and Jonathan and his, his son in the country of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So God removed the drought now that this heinous crime had been taken care of finally by David. The latter part of chapter 21 is a reference to several battles that took place against the Philistines. Now you remember that David had finally conquered the Philistines somewhere between his early reign and his 50th year. The Philistines had been subdued and there were no more attacks by the Philistines in David's later years. That's why we can assume that these events are written about certain times before the events that took place after Absalom's rebellion. But it tells us there were several battles that took place. In verse 15, one of them is this. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Jeriah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. It's interesting to note that they made this direct statement to David, and I'm pretty convinced that it is probably the time just shortly before his experience with Bathsheba, because it was at that time that Joab was fighting against the Philistines, but David did not go out to battle with them. And so this event probably took place shortly before that. David grew weary, faint, and he almost was killed by this giant. And it says his name was Ishbi Benab, and he was one of the sons of the giant. Well, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Repha, which is the singular for Rephaim. Rephaim were the giants in the land. And so it's not really certain whether he's referring to a particular giant, although many translators believe that it is a reference to Goliath, but it may not be. I only say that because the phrase the giant is going to be repeated several times until the end of this chapter. And it's all a translation of the Hebrew word Rapha, which just simply means the giant. It's not a reference necessarily to a particular giant, but it could be. 
But his name again was Ishbi Binab, and he was a very, very strong man. His spear, just the bronze head of a spear, weighed seven and a half pounds. Now, I don't know if any of you men, or maybe some women, have tried to throw a shot put about the same weight. It is not an easy thing to throw. This guy had that much weight on the end of his spear. That's how big and strong this man was. And he came against David, and it looked as though David was going to lose the fight until Abishai came to his rescue, his cousin, and he slew this giant. And it was then, again, that they decided, David, we don't want you to come out to battle anymore. It's too dangerous. You're our king. We need you to be able to remain as our king. Verse 18 relates another story. and It says, Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then Shebekai the Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant, Rapha. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Ethanan, the son of Jairoregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So he also was a very large man. First Chronicles chapter 12 verse, uh, chapter 20 rather, verse 5 tells us that this giant's name was Lami. And again, he was a brother of Goliath. And that's how it's translated here in this text that he was indeed a brother of Goliath, although it's in italics, and so it's hard to know whether the original Hebrew intended for that relationship to be given, but it is confirmed in First Chronicles that he was indeed one of Goliath's brothers. So this is one of the only ones that are listed in this group that we know is related to Goliath directly. Verse 20 says, Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was born to the giant, Rapha. This would be perhaps the first evidence given in man's history of Bigfoot. We have a Bigfoot in the West somewhere, supposedly, and I don't know if he's got six toes, but this giant had six toes on both feet, and he had six fingers on each hand. Amazing. I don't know about you. He was already already very fierce looking from the size of this man, but think of what it must have looked like when he raised his hands in an effort to grab an enemy with six fingers, and then you realize this guy is not one that you want to mess with. However, there was a man who took the challenge. Jonathan the son of Shimei, verse 21, David's brother, killed him. So Jonathan, again, one of David's cousins, killed this giant. Then it says in verse 22, these four were born to the giant, or to Rapha, in Gath, and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So the question is, were these four brothers, all of them, of Goliath, all of them born to the giant who remains unnamed, who would be the father of Goliath plus these four men that are listed here. That is a possibility. And it kind of gives credence to the tale, if you will, of why David took five stones with him when he went against Goliath, when he was that young teenage lad uh, defending the nation of Israel on behalf of his God. Remember, when David came before Goliath, he stopped and picked up five stones. He only used one of them. He was an accurate marksman as far as a sling is concerned. And he didn't need all five stones for that one giant. One stone would do the job. I'm convinced that David knew that rather well. So why did he take five? Well, the argument is, Goliath had four brothers. And if they were present at that time, then it is a possibility that David took one stone for Goliath 
and one for each of his four brothers. And that would be the reason, according to many who have reasoned this out from many, many uh, points of view, this is a story that seems to be very, very common among the Jews and among the people in uh, the church. But it's uncertain. It's just speculation. And I like to end with speculation because I didn't really have anywhere else to go tonight but that. I do want to say this. One of the things that we find in the stories of David is a consistency in David's love of God. Everywhere you turn, David did make some mistakes. David did sin, a great sin with Bathsheba and also especially in the killing of her husband Uriah. There was no excuse for some of the things that David did. There was no reason for God to not punish David. And God did punish David. But David never left his God. David repented. David mourned over his sin. Grieved over his sin. And Nathan the prophet had told David, there are consequences to what you have done and you will pay those consequences in the remainder of your life, David. And that certainly did happen. But in all of that, we have some of the most beautiful psalms that are written by David. Many of them psalms of lamentation, psalms confessing sin, psalms that were praising the Lord for his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace, psalms that are so beautiful and so meaningful, psalms that are prophetic, that speak of the Messiah, the one who is to come. God used David as a prophet of God in spite of all the wrong things that David did. Go through this history as you would and look at all the terrible things that resulted in David's sin. But know this, David never left his God. And God honored David with a covenant. Now remember, God was very, very bothered by the fact that Saul had broken the covenant that Joshua had made with the people who were the Gibeonites in Canaan. God saw that covenant as a binding covenant, one that should never be broken. And when you realize that that covenant, which was made by man and man, is nothing like the covenant that God has made with himself and man, you have to come to the conclusion that a covenant, as far as God is concerned, is an unbreakable covenant. No matter who is involved, God will not break his covenant that he has made with his people. Now, God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with David. God made a covenant with you and with me. And he will not break his covenant. And that's God's promise to us. And we should hang on those very words all the days of our lives. God bless you.